Okay. Hi, everyone. We're going to come back in now. I love it that you love each other so much you don't want to stop talking. This is cool. Hey, before Simon comes up to teach from Hebrews, and he's actually prepared a message this week. He's not going to do one just like from from whatever's on top of mind this week. He's actually put some time into it, so that's exciting to know. Before he does that, um, once a month at the street, we set aside a Sunday for baptisms. And we haven't had any baptisms here at Easton, so we just want to make sure we're letting you know what's going on um, within us as a church. And Jesus... Jesus taught us to um, repent and to be baptised. That as followers of Jesus, that's a step for us in, in declaring and demonstrating our commitment to follow him. And he modelled that himself by being baptised. And so we're just going to share with you um, this morning a, a bit of a story of um, a girl called Whitney who got baptised last Sunday night at City. Um, I'm just going to read you a bit of her testimony. She says, four months ago, I was a girl completely overtaken with anger and pain. It took everything I had to get out of bed each day, and I was at a loss to how I would regain motivation and joy in life. On the 4th of March, at 6pm on the dot, I decided I needed to go to church. I searched the closest place, and it was the street. I walked through these doors, and everything changed. I knew no one. I sat in the back and prayed, pleading that I was in pain, overwhelmed with frustration, and I needed proof, or I couldn't hold on to the small faith I had left. That's when Nick got up and repeated what I had just pleaded with God, saying that this was God proving to whoever this was that he could hear me. Since this day, I have had a best friend walking beside me. I have been shown what it feels like to be at peace. I have undergone more healing in the last four months than I have in the past 10 years. I'm getting baptised today to show my commitment to Jesus Christ, that I don't want to live my life without him by my side. How incredible is that? Yeah. So I didn't want us to miss out on these stories that are going on. Like Jesus is transforming lives. He's in the business of doing that. And I believe that Jesus is transforming lives here at East as well. And we're so excited to begin to see baptisms happening here. So this is just to keep it top of your mind. If you want to be baptized, please come and talk to Simon or I, or you can talk to one of the First Impressions team in the yellow t-shirt. They can connect you with the right people. Um, But we just wanted to celebrate that together this morning. So Simon, over to you. Okay. I had to sort myself out after that testimony. Like I had that testimony last week. I was an absolute mess. Uh, so if you need a moment to compose yourself, there's absolutely... Uh, fine. I want to start off, uh, hopefully, if it helps you compose yourselves, I want to start off with a little just, uh, let's just, let's get our guilty pleasures out there, okay? I talked last week about us being a, a grace and truth community, a, a community that we can be a part of and drop the masks. And I just want to, just want to show of hands to know where we're at, okay? So a few weeks ago, there was a royal wedding, okay? And I want to know, because I was surprised by this, and I think I know that we're going to find out more people than I expected. I want to know how many people gave up sleep to watch some of the royal wedding. See, a number of hands. Okay, you can keep your hand up if you lost some sleep to watch all of it. Like you stayed up for the duration. 
You can put your hands down. I, I feel like this is a real marker for us. This is We are growing as a community where we're able to drop our masks. I didn't stay up um, to watch it. I'm a, I'm a fan of the royal family. I've always loved the royal family. Not like stay up late to check out Megan's dress sort of fan, but a fan nonetheless. And, uh, and and one of the things I love is the ceremony. I love the, the outfits. Like even the guards or even the doormen like in the royal household, like their costumes, we'll call them costumes, are so incredible. Like I'd love to get my hands on one just for an evening, just turn up to a party and something like that. Maybe just welcome people to life group wearing something like that. It would be incredible. <laughs> But, but when you look at the, the royal wedding, when you, when you look at, you know, Harry and Meghan going and driving in dad's Aston or whatever, like, you can begin to wonder, like, what does this actually have to do with me? Like, I might enjoy watching it, I might obse- enjoy observing things from afar, but in the cold light of day, what difference does this actually make in my life? And I think if we're not careful, as we engage in this letter to the Hebrews, we can begin to ask the same question. Like, in all that I'm learning, yeah, that's nice. That's sort of good information. Maybe I get sort of warm, fuzzy feelings at new knowledge. But what does it actually have to do with me? After all, this is a letter written to Jewish Christians, probably in Jerusalem about 2,000 years ago. Like, I can't even relate to their lives. What does this letter, what could this letter possibly do to speak into my life? And and as we unpack Hebrews 5 today, we're going to examine things like the high priest. Now, I've never really known a priest, and and he served in a temple that was destroyed in AD 70. And so I can begin to ask the question, that's fine, Simon, like that's awesome, like learning about all this stuff about the high priest, but what does it have to do with me? And, And then I sit in church and I hear a story like Whitney's. I was a mess last week. That testimony was so incredible. Like Usually it's like, this is my story, I want to follow Jesus. And we get nicely sort of into the baptistry that's here and we, we baptize them. Like that testimony was so off the chart. I just wanted her to like drop the mic and jump in. Like I just thought that would have been the most appropriate conclusion to that testimony. It was mind-blowing. And far from being, what does that have to do with me? She came in with a very, very real question. And God led Nick to, to, to share something that spoke directly into that question. And she came with very real pain and very real challenges and a very real life. And she encountered Jesus who met her in the middle of it. What does it have to do with her? Everything. And so when we understand that this whole idea of the the priest and and, and the temple came from a framework, all of which God put into place, the primary purpose of all of that, to point to his one and only son who would ultimately fulfill all of those things so that we might hear and respond to the message, the good news about him, Jesus Christ, so that lives might be changed. What does it have to do with me? Absolutely everything. Absolutely everything. And so I don't want you just to sort of engage this morning as we read these words from Hebrews 5, just like this is vaguely interesting. I want us to engage with them with this in mind. This is life-changing for me and it's life-changing for those in my world. 
It has everything to do with people in the 21st century. Would you join me? We're going to read from verse 1 of chapter 5 of Hebrews. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed in matters pertaining to God for the people to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray since he also he is also clothed with weakness. Because of this, he must make an offering for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. No one takes this honor upon himself. Instead, a person is called by God just as Aaron was. In the same way, Christ did not exalt himself to become a high priest, but God who said to him, you are my son, today I have become your father, also says in another place, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. During his earthly life, he offered up prayers and appeals with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. After he was perfected, he became the source of eternal salvation for all, for all who obey him. And he was declared by God a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Would you pray with me, Father, we want to thank you so much for this word. Lord, would we treasure it. And God, you know my heart this week. You know what I've been praying. You promised to come with a ministry of fire. You promised to pour out fire upon the church. And so, God, I pray that by your spirit, you'd bring these words to light in us today. I pray, God, that they would matter in the very depths of our being. I pray that what we learn today would matter tomorrow. And I pray that as we, that as we, as a community, learn more and more what it means to do life in, in, in all of its reality and in all of its challenges, pursuing Jesus, I pray, God, that more and more you'd make us salt and light in this community, that people would come to know Jesus, that their lives too might be changed. So, God, we give you these moments because it matters for the sake of the people around us and, the, and for the sake of our experience of life. Would you use these moments in Jesus' name? Amen. Come on, show me you're awake. Amen. Hallelujah. Hey, I don't know, has anybody visited people in hospital? Okay, I assume we've sort of been and, and, and visited friends or family in hospital and, and you can't just sort of show up when you want, okay? There are visiting hours. So whenever you ask, hey, you come and visit me in hospital or go and visit Nan in hospital, there tends to be a visiting hours. And also, it tends to be just not just anyone can come. It tends to be like friends and family, that sort of thing. Fortunately, you know, I'm a pastor and so people go, are you friends or family? Pastor. It's like FBI, you know, like just doors open, coffee served and it's all great. We have to go a particular time and you have to sort of be a particular person. Last year, I got to visit a friend, a guy in our church who had leukemia. He's recovered now. He's he's on uh, overseas serving Jesus at the moment. But um, he had leukemia, and he, because of that, um, contracted an infection. And so he was in isolation, and I went to visit him. And so more than just um, visiting at a certain time or being a certain person, there were extra restrictions because he was in this room that was set apart from the rest of the hospital, certainly set apart from the rest of the world. 
And so it wasn't just the, the person and the time that mattered. It also mattered that I washed in a certain way. And so you go through this first room where you have to sort of scrub up and you wash. And, and then and then I had to put on this apron and put on this mask. And so I don't know if you ever tried to care for somebody and talk at a real deep level. You know, facial expressions are everything. And so it's really hard doing it with a mask like this. Okay, that makes it pretty tricky. But the reason is because the world is messy. And the hospital have created this sterile environment so that no sort of bad stuff gets in for the for the sake of this patient. And so I had to not just come at a particular time, but I had to wash in a certain way. I had to wear certain things in order to go in and actually engage with this person. And I think this is sort of quite a good example of what the temple is like. Because the temple for us, in, in the, 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 the priest um, uh, ministered in, served in, is sort of removed from us a little bit. But God is holy. God is pure. God is perfect. Okay, And when you and I sinned, when we rebelled against God's word and God's will and God's ways, it brought about separation. But God so loves people that he wants to dwell with people, but he can't look upon sin. And so these sort of two competing things. And so the temple came about because God created this sterile environment. In the Bible, it's called holy. It is set apart. It is completely other from everything around it. And God creates this environment within which he can dwell among his people. But for a relationship to exist, somebody has to be able to cross the divide. And so the way God did that was by creating a priesthood. Somebody who would come at a particular time. Somebody who would come and wash in a particular way. Somebody who would wear particular clothes in order to come. And the thing is, that couldn't be anybody. It had to also be a particular person who would cross into that holy place and represent the people before God and represent God before the people so that relationship could exist. That is the priesthood. And what Hebrews 5 is all about is about the particular person that God would choose to be a priest. Notice verse 1, it says, For every high priest taken from among men is appointed in matters pertaining to God for the people to offer both gifts and sacrifices. The priest had to be a person. Now, it would be odd if the priest was a puppy or a llama. Okay, that would be weird. It's sort of like, it makes sense that the priest would be a person, right? But then verse 4 says, no, no one takes this honor upon himself. You can't just choose to be a priest. Instead, a person is called by God, just as Aaron was. And so when the law comes about and the temple comes about, Moses is the one who sort of communicated this message from God. But but God says, no, you're not going to be a priest, uh, Moses. Your brother Aaron will be. Your brother Aaron is going gonna, is gonna to be the one who is going to come in at a particular time and serve me in this way. And, and, and every priest is going to be descended from him. Now, the message of Hebrews is that, is that Jesus is the better. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these Old Testament things. And so we have to understand that Jesus is the fulfillment of the temple and he is the better, the greater high priest. And so it makes sense then that Jesus, the Son of God, had to take on human flesh in order to represent us. Not just to be the sacrifice, but to be the one who would go into the presence of God and present that sacrifice. Okay, He had to be a human, living, breathing person. But then, if Jesus is to be the the better, the more superior priest, we've got a problem, haven't we? Because Jesus was 
from the tribe of Judah because Jesus was from the royal tribe, the, the, the monarchy. And, and all of the priests are from the tribe of Levi. And so suddenly you sort of got this situation, Jesus, you can't have your cake and eat it. You know, you can't be king and priest. That never comes together. And that's where these words become really, really important. No one takes this honor upon themselves. They, they're called by God just as Aaron was. In the same way, verse 5, Christ did not exalt himself to become a high priest. But God who said, we've encountered Psalm 2, this quote from Psalm 2 before, you are my son today, I've become your father. That same God who said that also says, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Those words there at the bottom are drawn from Psalm 110. This prophetic psalm where there is the king and the priest and it prophesies a day when the priest and king will be represented by the same person. And then we get this funny little thing in there. In the order of, not of Aaron, but of Melchizedek. Anybody heard the name Melchizedek before? Sort of pretty familiar. When Jenny and I got together, I wanted to call a son Melchizedek. And somebody said, Simon, that's sort of like calling your son Jesus. Maybe don't do that. I mean, mainly we never had boys, so we never had really that conversation. But sort of Jenny was like, over my dead body, never calling a son Melchizedek. Anyway, all good. But Jesus, what Melchizedek does is Melchizedek points to Jesus. Melchizedek is this weird character, okay, let's be honest, that appears only in that psalm, Psalm 110, and in Genesis 14. He's this character that appears for about two verses. He was a king, and he was a priest of God Most High. And there's two significant things about Genesis 14 that we see. One, he is this priest of God Most High who appears with Abraham, and therefore before the law, and before the temple, and before the Aaronic priesthood. Okay, so he's a priest existing before God, but before Aaron. And also the Bible never records that he died. Now there are two schools of thought around this. One is that he was a real person, he was a real king, he was a real priest before God. And the reason the Old Testament never records that he dies is because it is a picture. Some people say a type, it's some is a person that points to a priest who was to come who would be superior. Some people think that this is actually a Christophany. That's a bit of a long word, but what we mean by that is an Old Testament appearing, pre-manger, pre-Christmas appearing of Jesus. Either way, this character Melchizedek appearing in Genesis 14 is a powerful picture of Jesus who would represent a superior priesthood that would never ever end. A priest who was permanently chosen by God and a priest who perfectly represents us before God. The purpose of this is to point to Jesus as the great high priest, the one who fulfills all of this seemingly irrelevant stuff and is a priest before God on our behalf right now. And what Hebrews 5 does is it shows us more the humanity side of it. It shows us that Jesus is this faithful priest who knows what it is like to be you and I, who embrace the weakness and the pain and the challenges of everyday life. He gets you. He knows what it's like to be you. And we see these indicators in Hebrews 5 as that high priest, as our high priest of someone who's able to demonstrate a superior way of living. 
a powerful and profoundly different perspective on life. I want to take us through four of those things right now. Go back into verse 2 with me. It says this, He, as the priest, is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and going astray, since he is also clothed with weakness. This is talking about an earthly uh, earthly priest who sinned. That's what that weakness means. That is not Jesus. Okay, He was perfect, never sinned. But if an earthly high priest who got things wrong was able to deal gently with those who also sinned, how much more Jesus, our great high priest, is able To deal gently with us. Deal gently means deal moderately. Deal without passion. All of us, I bet, at some time have had somebody lose it with us. Somebody completely go off the scale at us. Maybe you're even somebody struggling with anger today. Struggling to deal gently with people around you. and Maybe you've got a short fuse. You know, there are a couple of responses we can have to sin. We can hide it away. We can actually try and ignore it day in, day out in our world. People go, how about we don't call it sin? How about we just change the standard and suddenly nothing is really wrong anymore? But when we understand that Jesus is the one who represents God on our behalf and deals gently, won't lose his rag with you, won't fly off in a rage with you, we actually realize he creates the environment for us to be honest. So I'm not going to hide it and I'm not going to ignore it. Jesus, I'm going to come before you and be honest about it. So this is what I'm facing. But you know the incredible thing about Jesus is he doesn't just meet you there in that moment of confession. He provides you a powerful way through. Team on last week, uh, we missed it at East, but you can check it out online. Took us through the end of chapter 4. I just want to revise a couple of verses there. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is tempted in every way as we are. He gets it. He gets what it's like to be tempted, yet without sin. He never messed up. He never got it wrong. So he knows what it's like to be tested like we are, and yet he shows what it's like to actually get through that. Okay, notice now what it says. This is powerful. If you get this verse, it is life-changing for you. Okay, verse 16. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we might receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So often people struggle to differentiate between grace and mercy. Mercy is you deserve punishment and you don't get it. When we approach God, when we approach our high priest honestly, we say, this is my sin, this is my error, this is my hard-heartedness, I just can't change. He's the one who grants mercy, he says, I'm not going to punish you for that. But then there is a difference, it says, and find grace to help us in our time of need. Grace is God's great enabler. It's not just a synonym for mercy. It is different. It is the means by which God works in your life from beginning to end as a free gift, unmerited favor. It means not only does God grant you mercy and not punish you for your error, but he actually provides you the means to powerfully overcome. You know how I approach this? I say, God, this is the problem in my life. And I realize this is sin. I realize you don't like this. And I also want to acknowledge, I don't want to change. But God, I pray that you would pour grace into my life. I've believed in you. And still I find hard-hearted 
weakness in me and I can't change. So would you give me the free gift of unmerited favor again? I invite your work in my life again today. Do you know what I notice? Maybe the next day, maybe the day after, I'm no different. But I look a week later, a month later, and I go, wow, when did that change? Because I invite grace. That's one of the things it means to believe in Jesus, to know that Jesus is your high priest. Not only does he deal gently with you, not only can you be honest before him, not only does he grant you mercy, but he provides grace in abundance so that you might overcome. So that pattern of sin that is plaguing you right now might one day be a distant memory and you might have a really different experience of life and those around you might experience a different you. Jesus, our high priest. Three more things. Go with me, verse 7 now. During his earthly life, he offered up prayers and appeals with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. God who is holy. God who is eternal. God who is all-powerful. God who is all-knowing. What could he possibly have to do with me? What could I possibly learn about him? What could he possibly know what it's like to be me? How real is verse 7? I bet all of us at some point in our life can relate to that. During his earthly life, he offered prayers and appeals with loud cries and tears. This got painful. This got real. Real tears, real brokenness, real pain. Like it got snotty. You ever face those moments in life? Jesus gets it. Jesus has been there. And and the thing is, we can begin to look at that and go, oh wow, do you know what's going on there? He's scared of dying on the cross, and so that's why he's crying. No, that's not why he's crying. And I know that. Why? Because it says he was heard because of his reverence. Now, Jesus still died on the cross. So his prayer, his cries were answered, yet he still died on the cross. So he wasn't saying, Jesus, God, God the Father, spare me from the cross. He was saying, I'm about to surrender my life entirely and die. I will be absolutely powerless at that moment to raise myself. I, no one has ever gone through that and risen to resurrected life, never to die again before. This has never happened. I'm trusting everything to you, Father. I'm laying it all down for the sake of these people because we so love them. But it is about to go outside of my control. I need you. Ever face circumstances that are just beyond you? Like so far out of your control. So often our prayer is, why? Instead of coming and saying, oh God, this is painful, but I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust that if Jesus can, can, can entrust the, 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 the story of humanity in his own life, in death, to the, to, to the faithfulness of God the Father, then you and I can trust, entrust today to him. And here's the other thing. Sometimes it's not even things that get out of our control. It's that you know God's leading you somewhere and you're like, I'm not giving up control. (laughs) 
I like being in control. Thank you very much. I like being the master of my own destiny. I'm not ready to give that up yet. But in our high priest, we see one who has gone before us and, and, and voluntarily gone out of my control and entrusted to the faith, his life to the faithfulness of the Father. Are you somebody who needs to be in control? Well, can you see in this a way forward of saying, I trust my life wherever it would lead to you, Father, because I know you're trustworthy. Verse 8 is a bit of a strange one. Although he was a son, although he was the son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. Some of you are going to say, I thought Jesus was perfect. How did he learn obedience? Well, that verse doesn't mean he was at one point disobedient and suddenly learned to become obedient. It means that the circumstances of the cross, the circumstances of his suffering on the cross presented an opportunity for Jesus to to demonstrate his obedience to a greater degree than had ever been possible before. He'd never had been called to die on a cross before. He'd been called by God to do other things day in, day out. But when the moment of the cross came, Jesus was able to demonstrate his obedience in that way too. That word learn can also mean uh, to, to be in the habit of. And so what we realize is that day in, day out in his earthly life, Jesus created a habit of obedience. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. So when the stakes got higher, his default was still to say, I trust you. I'm going to say yes again. You know, so often in life, I think we can pray, oh God, I'll serve you. It'll be fine if the circumstances change. Like if that happens, that would be easy to serve you. You know, what Jesus did day in, day out was not say, I'll serve you one day. It was to say, I'm going to put into practice yesterday and yesterday and yesterday. You know, the thing in the thing is, this word learned also appears in Philippians 4, where it says Paul had new times of plenty and he knew times of great need, but he learned the secret. He put into practice in every season of life the opportunity to be content. He made a habit of it. He made a habit of it so that whether it was, and so, and so it was the, in, in times of plenty, that was an, a fresh opportunity to say, I'm going to, I can learn, I can put into practice contentment. When he didn't have enough, it was, it was an opportunity to put into practice contentment. Don't wait for the season to change. Every single day is a fresh opportunity to say yes to God and to put into practice your faith, to make your faith real. Every single day. Final thing I want you to notice here, verse 9. After he was perfected, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. And he was declared by God a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. This is profound. It means you and I can live life with a guarantee. He became the source of eternal salvation, never to be changed, never to be diminished, never to be taken away. You and I can live life on the basis of a guarantee. This is unique. Every single other worldview does it differently. Okay? Every other theistic religion has this, has this God figure who says, this is the standard. 
And then everyone else has to figure out how do we try and win that God's approval? How do we try and appease his judgment for the fact that we're different? How do we work ourselves up to that standard? Even Buddhism that doesn't have a a, a theistic figure, a deity in it, still has this concept of nirvana. This, I need to try and work my way up. I've got to work things out to get to that point. Christianity, faith in Jesus is fundamentally different. Jesus as our high priest is unique. He is the one who is the standard. He is perfectly acceptable to God already. And he took on flesh. He put his obedience into practice by taking on flesh so that he might represent us. He put that obedience into practice to the extent that he died on the cross to pay the penalty for my sin and your sin. And he rose to resurrected, never to die again life. He didn't just not sin in his life, in his death. He crushed sin so that he might show you a way of over coming and that he might enter a forever priesthood where he is permanently acceptable to God and he perfectly represents you and I. Just as the priest used to enter the the, the most holy place once a year and sprinkle the blood of lambs that was to, to pay the price before God for the price for the for the penalty of sin. Jesus has died once for all with his own blood. And as the risen, permanent high priest, he enters not an earthly temple, he enters the heavenly temple and he sprinkles blood. So that when the father says, but they've done wrong, he says, yeah, but this is my blood to permanently pay for it. Do you know what it means? It means if you believe in Jesus, you know you are approved and you're acceptable to God forever. And some of you are still performing. Some of you are still coming to the end of the day going, God, have I done enough? Are you pleased with me, Dad? And I believe one of the things the priesthood teaches us is that you can be forever free from this obligation to try and perform, to try and be worthy, to try and be acceptable to God. Because of Jesus, your high priest, you have a guarantee of eternal salvation. And just as he enters heaven itself on our behalf, he blazes a trail for us to follow. This is our high praise. And as we close, as we draw our time to a conclusion, I'm going to invite Josh and Sarah and the team up and we're just going to create some space to respond. And we're going to use words of of songs. And, And it's a way of us considering Jesus like I talked about in Hebrews 3 a few weeks ago. It's an opportunity for us to to use words to an articulate a response. It might be that you want to use that time not to not to sing, but just to take that space. Remember I said last week, the awesome thing about worship is that nobody needs anything of you right now. There's nowhere else you need to be for these sort of 10 minutes that we have left. There's no other call on your time. There's no email to respond to. There's no chores to do. Here is a space for you to say, okay, God, here I am. Thank you that I can be honest. This is what I want to be honest about today. It might be that you say, man, I want to repent of trying to win your approval.
and I want to receive it. It might be that you want to say, I've been desperate for this next season. But I want to follow you. I want to know what it is to believe and to obey you today. It might be that you say, this is a space for you to get real. Can I say it is okay if these moments get real and messy? One of the biggest costs that we have on our financial statements as a church is tissues and juice and bread. Because it doesn't matter whether it's a testimony, it doesn't matter whether it's a worship response, it doesn't matter whether it's a staff meeting, honestly, we weep. And it gets real. And if that is what happens for you today, that is okay. So in these 10 minutes, we're going to worship. And as we do, it might be that you want to come up the front and say, would somebody stand with me today and pray? You don't even have to say what that's about. We want to create space right now. And if this morning is your day to say, today I believe in Jesus, I want to receive that eternal guarantee for the first time, then we would love to lead you through that. Come grab one of us. Maybe talk to the person you came with. As we worship, would you stand? And let me pray. Our Father.